welcome to the Her Story Speaks podcast. I'm your host, Andrea Miller. My guest today is author, speaker, and activist, Kathy Kahn. Kathy is a woman with a passionate voice and message that challenges all of us about the importance of speaking up and having our voices rooted in the image of God. As a Korean-American immigrant woman, Kathy shares her story of experiencing racial bullying as a child and how she has struggled with speaking out for her entire life. And despite having so many things to say, for 10 years, Kathy wrestled with finding the courage to write her book, Raise Your Voice. Kathy's story and message reminds all of us that what we have to say is worthy, it matters, and it's powerful. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for joining me today on the Her Story Speaks podcast. Thanks a lot for the invitation, Andrea. Well, I am excited to jump into your story and your message because I don't think it could be more timely with what's going on in the world today. But before we do that, I'm going to give you a quick kind of your professional intro. Kathy Kong is a speaker, journalist, and activist. She's worked in campus ministry for more than 20 years with expertise in issues relating to gender, ethnicity, justice, and leadership development. Kathy's also a columnist for Sojourners Magazine and an author of the book, Raise Your Voice. Could you tell me, though, what your day-to-day, that's your professional, but tell me where you live and your kids and all that stuff. Yeah, so I live in the north suburbs of Chicago, so we have been sheltering in place for just under a week, Uh, but um, we have been a family of five for a little more than a week and a half now. Um, I've got three kids. Uh, My daughter, Bethany, she is 24. She's a dancer and a stretch therapist out in New York City, but she has come home uh, because work has dried up and uh, New York City became a hotspot. So we got her out of there um, before things got really bad. Um, And then we have a 20-year-old, Corbin, who is a junior in college, and he came home for spring break, knowing that he would have spring break, and then two weeks of online learning. And then we found out that he will be home for the rest of the semester because everything's going online. So we will move him out of the dorm at some point uh, later this spring. And then we have Elias, who is 18, and he is a high school senior. That's hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a hard time. So this is spring break week and then they go to online learning for a week or so. We've not heard anything uh, from the school about extending that period, but yeah, we're, we're kind of holding our breath and the kids are all talking amongst themselves, just kind of assuming that their senior year has blown up. So it's been kind of, yeah, it's been sad. I think we're all grieving a little bit. So, uh, and that's what my daughter is 17 and graduating a year mm-hmm. early. Um, she's homeschooled, so we've we've she's wanted to graduate a year early, but now I'm like, maybe we shouldn't, maybe we need to slow down so you can have yeah. a I don't know, it's just a really this is all new territory for all of us, and high school senior it's a really hard time for them. Oh, yeah, it's it's been a lot of trying to explain. They, I think they understand, but it still seems rather unfair in their lives and um you know he's had a pretty good life and so this is one of those uh experiences that is challenging what he knows to be his privilege and you know the access that he has so it's been um so you know usually i'm a mom to a high schooler and the last (laughs) almost two weeks it's been you know a full house my husband peter is on faculty at a dental school and so he has been going in and coming home and I'm using the one can of Lysol spray I have left and, you know, having him spray everything and take stuff off and run upstairs and shower before he says hello to anyone. Yes, <laughs> so, I understand. It's, That's, it's, 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 it's changed crazy. just everything right now. It's just it really that this is, is the world we're living in. And it we'll really. talk after we tell your story. I want to dig back into yeah. this because I know that, um, with what we're going through, that has a lot, a lot more ramifications on your voice and your message. And we'll dive back into that after we share, or if you'll share with yeah. us just some of your story, your origin story, where you were born, how you got to the United States, just all of that. So take it back. Yes. Yeah, so, um, 
Let's see. I was born in Seoul, South Korea, and my family, the three of us, my mom and dad and myself, we came to the U.S. Uh, via the port of Seattle uh, when I was eight months old and then uh, came to Chicago to say hello to family. And I think it was my dad's like second cousin or something like that. Their family had all settled here in Chicago probably just a year before my parents and I came. We were headed actually to Philadelphia, but uh, our family you know, said, why don't you settle here? We can help you find an apartment. We can help you find jobs. And so here we stayed and here we settled. So what brought your family here? Because I know dad had a very good education and job in Korea. So what made them want to come to America? Yeah, so it was 1971. It was still post-war, post-Korean War Korea. And Mm -hmm. uh, things were, um, Korea was still considered a developing nation. So my dad had, at that time, I think he had two master's degrees in chemical engineering and mining. And my mom had a bachelor's degree in accounting. Uh, And they kind of looked at what the prospects were and I think really had hope and believed and have found that there were opportunities here in the United States that came uh, with a lot of turmoil and trial, uh, came in different ways. And so, uh, you know, my parents and I have talked a lot about it. They've been back to Korea in the last few years. I have not been back since the 80s. But they have and often talk about how proud they are of their motherland and how Korea is no longer a developing nation. And even as we sit here and talk about how our lives here in the U.S. have been uh, turned upside down, you know, it's the whole world. And there's been some spotlight on how South Korea has handled the pandemic. So. They came here really, you know, it's the American dream story, right? They thought that they could make a life for themselves, that it would be a better opportunity for their daughter and any future children. Uh, So we settled in Chicago, uh, stayed in Chicago proper until I was in second grade and right around Thanksgiving, moved out to the West suburbs. um, And my parents are still in the same town and I'm maybe less than an hour away. My sister is maybe 10 minutes away from my parents. So we've, we've stayed. We're Midwestern kids. <laughs> and you say what you just mentioned, like kind of it's been sort of the American dream, but that doesn't mean it's been at all easy because your parents took really lower paying jobs and they were qualified for, you struggled with the language. Like it was, it's not been an easy move for your parents and they sacrificed a lot coming here. Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, my parents tell stories and they've told the grandkids stories. And, um, you know, my dad's first job was as a busboy at a restaurant. And, uh, you know, he was a man in his late 20s, then early 30s with two master's degrees. Yeah. And he was bussing tables and uh, learning Uh, to be more fluent in the language. So both of them came with some English background, but definitely very little practice in conversational English. Um, And, you know, and in a lot of ways, it is that story. However, you know, I realize, and they realize too, that it isn't that they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps. It's that they were they made it in because the immigration quota system allowed them to be in they came because they had their degrees and so they were sought after um and we were able to settle in because we had family that had come before us uh you know all of those right you know it it is the they did it themselves and worked super hard it was everybody in the community was working super hard to support one another. And so, I mean, we have endless stories about, you know, the super at the apartment helping and scavenging, you know, furniture and furnishings for their apartment and people uh, helping along the way and like cultural missteps 
I was just thinking about one actually the other day. I I bought some buttermilk because I plan on frying some chicken. And my dad told the story about uh, milk and how my sister, I think it was my sister, but it could have been me. Um, We were running low on supplies and um, my dad wanted to bring like a surprise treat. And so buying milk would have been that. And he was looking in the dairy case and he saw this thing called buttermilk and it was far more expensive than regular milk. So in his mind, it was like, oh, so this must be better. Mm -hmm. And he brought it home and was like, what is this? (laughs) Like, we can't drink this. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me a little bit, you talk about, in your book, The Raise Your Voice, you share just a little bit the survival that you had to and the assimilation and the bullying. Can you talk a little bit about that in your childhood and what you remember? Because even though your parents had jobs and the community was helping you, it was still hard on you as a child to be from a different country and to try to oh. assimilate. Oh, absolutely. So my recollection of the first couple years of school were both full of joy and delight and horror. I When I started kindergarten, I was not an English speaker. So I was home with my mom and, and then eventually with a Korean babysitter. And so I grew up only speaking and hearing Korean. So when I started school, I did not have any English. And I uh, that is what I attribute Uh, to my lack of memory for like the first two years of school. I remember friends and I remember those types of experiences, but I I don't remember a lot about school. And the teasing and bullying actually didn't come until we left Chicago. So what I remember of Chicago was a diverse group of friends. I still remember them. I remember Evangelia. Uh, She was Greek. She lived with her grandmother. And so we would smell the smells of fish and chicken and lemon. And then we would go to Serge's house and he um, is Filipino and we would hear Tagalog. And then there was Vikram, who's Indian. That was kind of my close circle of friends. And then we moved out to the suburbs. And that was when I realized that not every school looked like a Chicago public school. (laughs) We were the first non-white family to move into that school district. And, um, you know, when you, when a kid goes into a new public school or even a private school, I don't, I'm assuming they do this, like they'll assign you a buddy to help show you around, especially at the elementary school age, probably not the high school or middle school, but definitely elementary school. And I remember um, being assigned Gwen. And I tell the story because we became fast friends after this. And then we got back in touch on Facebook. And so we still keep in touch. We go to the high school reunions and catch up there. But Gwen was taking me around and you know showing me the important places of the school and then she looked at me and she was like what's wrong with your eyes like what's mm. what's wrong with your nose and then i looked at her and i was like well what's wrong with your eyes and what's mm-hmm. wrong with your nose so we became fast friends and uh, but it wasn't yeah like i said in terms of the bullying and the teasing it really wasn't until we moved to the very white almost exclusively white suburbs at that time where the bullying happening so yeah so tell me with that cuz this process this journey of you mm-hmm. learning how to raise your voice i uh-huh. it was started in your childhood and i'm sure mm-hmm. these experiences <laughs> and the bullying so what messages were you getting at that time what did you try to do did you speak up against the bullying were you taught to just be quiet how did you d- deal with that as a child yeah i tried all sorts of different things um i tried to speak up against it. So, you know, it worked with Gwen. <laughs> right. I was saying, you're pretty bold there. What's wrong with yours? Right. <laughs> right. And I, and I think it is that kind of the innocence of childhood is that uh-huh. I didn't understand where that was coming from. And I was trying to process this newness of looking around and going, everyone looks similar and no one looks like my friends from school in Chicago. Um, but, you know, as the days went on, the bullying and the teasing was very pointed and sometimes hinted at violence. And, you know, I would try to tell teachers and they 
we're not prepared for racialized teasing and bullying. Um, I remember being pulled into the principal's office once because I did start yelling back on the bus, but I was yelling back in Korean. <laughs> <laughs> Because I knew I could express myself fully right. with very few ramifications because no one was going to, exp no one would know what I was right. saying. And it was right. all bad words. Right. And Your I remember being, out, they didn't know. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. That's the advantage to being bilingual. <laughs> and, um, you know, and the principal just calling me in not to punish me, but to ask me what was going on. So I do remember those times of feeling like, I'm trying, but it's not working. Um, but overall, I will say that the message I got growing up was put your head down, do your work, excel in school, get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't safe. And you share a little bit too in your book how the Asian culture is typically, stereotypically, I guess, being mm -hmm. more quiet, where Americans are stereotypically louder. And so you're, you're trying to figure out that too, of your, where you're living and where you're from. So I'm sure that was hard. Right, right. Absolutely. And, and part of that is the, the values. So here in the United States, it's very much like we're independent, pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We are loud and proud. I remember yeah. hearing friends saying, you know, that at 18, they were adults and then they would be responsible for their own lives. And I thought, I'm never going to be fully an adult so long yeah. as my parents are alive because we are always going to be that family. And then in the Korean culture in particular, um, it's communal. And so when I make a decision about my family, when I say my family, I think my kids and my husband, but my parents think, oh, they should be included in that mm. decision because it still has an impact on them. And so part of that is assimilation and survival. Talk a little bit about your name, the name change, because that is such so representative of what you're just talking about, which I think is just Sure. So, you know, um, I go by Kathy Kong, and but that's not my full given name. So in Korean, the family name comes first, and then you're given your name that also has a generational connection to it. Historically, it's a generational connection only for men, for boys. Um, my family and our generation, all of the girls have the same second syllable to their their name. So my full name is Kang Kyung Ah. And then my sister's name would be Kang Son Ah. So that second syllable of our kind of individual name is the same. So we can tie that generationally. And, and then the name gets lost, right? In assimilation, yeah. my parents knew that that just would be too difficult or too challenging and would present more opportunities for teasing and bullying as if my last name wasn't going to be bad enough. Right. So, right. Right. so, so I became Kathy and the only people who call me Kyunga are my parents. And so that gets lost. That name was given to me by my paternal grandfather as is tradition, the Chinese characters, because Korea was occupied by the Chinese, the Chinese characters mean congratulations because I was the first girl born on my dad's side in four generations. So that rich history of being connected to a family that goes back generations gets lost so that, you know, for my own protection in a lot right. of ways. Right. Yeah. It goes back to the survival and the assimilation. Mm -hmm. And when I, and when I said that's a cool part of your story, I meant, I didn't mean that you had to change your name with school because I think that's, sad that we have that that is what you had to do. I think what is cool is the tradition of it and the name that you had. And it really is just so shows the tradition in your culture of the like we before me with how your yes. name, how they had the importance of names. So yes. I just want to clarify that I don't yeah, think, yeah, think that you had to change your name. Um, so let's fast forward a little bit because we've got a lot, a lot of ground to cover. So we're yeah. going to fast forward through some of your story, but uh, talk about when you realized you weren't a U.S. citizen because we're assuming, I guess, if we're hearing your story, like I guess after she lived here a couple of years, they became U.S. citizens, but not your not the case with you. Right. So I was documented. Um, I had a green card. It was actually green. And I think I had just assumed that 
and my parents actually had assumed because my mom became naturalized early on. And I think because they thought I was a minor, I would become naturalized through that process. And so again, right, lost in translation, things at that time were not printed in multiple languages, all that kind of stuff. And so I went to, co- I went to college knowing that I had a green card and I was a legal alien a resident alien is what it's called. And they gave me the choice of whether or not I would pursue citizenship right away. Um, And, and I didn't, I didn't. Um, I, I visited Korea when I was in college. It was the summer before the summer Olympics there. That really um, sent me on this crazy ethnic identity journey of trying to figure out what that meant because I was in a country where I finally looked like everyone, but they could tell right away the moment I opened my mouth that I was from the United States. And then I came back here and I was like, oh my gosh, I go back to the suburbs. There are very few people who look like me and I stand out. And even in the suburb where my family and I currently live, it is still the case. We're very few Asian Americans here in this suburb. And um, I really wrestled with it all yeah. through my adulthood. And even after 9-11, when my dad begged me to get my citizenship quickly, I hesitated for a lot of reasons around, you know, am I American? Will I ever be considered American? Would someone who looks at me who is American-born Caucasian white, would they see me and say, oh yeah, she's an American. That has not been my experience. Um, But it was, uh, and I'll be honest, it was after um, Barack Obama's first uh, win, his first uh, presidential win, I decided to become a US citizen. I felt like, I missed out on something that was huge and historic and that I had a clear path to citizenship because I had a green card, I had the money, I had the access, I now had the language. I'd been living my entire life in the US at that point, I was in my 30s, um, that I needed to go through the process. And so uh, I became a US citizen. I think it was, it's been a little more than a decade now. Okay. And um, one of the things that comes with that, that influenced your decision was the ability to vote too. Is yes. that right? Yes. Right. Which I don't think everybody's aware of. And I found that really interesting. Yeah. So I realized that that was, um, you know, that's a privilege and that a lot of, uh, you know, American born uh, folk, don't exercise that privilege for various reasons. Um, but I realized that that was something that I had the potential to use on behalf of those who could not. And right. that was my feeling of, oh, not everyone can do this. I can. I have the potential to, to cast that vote. And so I felt like that was some sort of civic duty that I could take on um, and and went through the process of naturalization. And I want to expand on that in just a little bit, talking about privilege and using it and that important message in your book. But before we dive into that, I just want to talk a little bit about your faith mm-hmm. because I, you know, just in, in sharing, we'll talk about the the article that I shared yesterday, you know, people, I think, yeah. question the faith of anybody that speaks out or looks different or is not the typical, quote, Christian. So tell me a little bit how your faith is playing out during this time of being in the United States and not feeling accepted or the church that you're in. Just, And I'm sure that could be a whole podcast in itself. But if you can just, just kind of summarize the role of your yeah. faith in God during that time. Well, I mean, my entire life has been rooted in the church. Uh, My parents will say that one of the first things we did after we got to the U.S. was go to church. And one of the first pictures I have of myself is in front of a Korean United Methodist Church with my parents um, soon after we had come and decided to stay in Chicago. And so um, my parents raised me and my sister up in uh, the church. My dad became a pastor when I was in college. And, you know, and I went into campus ministry after pursuing journalism as a career. So for me, faith and um, my relationship with 
God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit has always been a factor in not only how I behave, but how I make decisions. And and even that decision to become a naturalized U.S. citizen was in part realizing and wrestling with, oh, this is actually an opportunity God is giving me to steward. Right. It's about stewardship. And so what am I going to do knowing that this is a process that is going to be much easier for me than for many people in the same situation? And so how do I how do I steward that? How do I care for that well so that when I'm face to face with God, right, right. I get asked, what did you do with X? And I can say, oh, this is what I did. Instead of saying, well, you know, I buried it in the backyard and figured, you know, I'd, I'd dig it up later. Um, and so for me, this whole process, even the process of writing the book and when I engage online or when I say yes to a podcast like this, is it, it's really about what is God's invitation to me and how am I stewarding the opportunities, the possible influence that I have to share with others who may not share my same perspective, but say that we share the same faith and try to push that a little bit. Which, as you know, is very, I think, the most challenging time in this country to do that (laughs) with the current political administration. Um, So, and I'm trying, and I actually had read your book before, and I reread it as I'm on my journey of trying to raise my own voice and learn from Mm-hmm. your advice and experience because it's it's a really hard time to do that and I one of the things that you talked about for when you're posting online even was like make sure it's positive and not divisive and I was like okay I don't think I do that like it's just it's a lot to figure out now with this current political situation oh so, absolutely <laughs> and <laughs> so like I told you before I was listening to Jen Hatmaker a, con- a conversation you had with her two years ago and she was saying this is this message couldn't be more important than right now. And I was like, actually, fast forward three, two or three years, it really right. couldn't be more important. Like she had no idea. So, so your book, Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and Why We Speak and How to Speak Up. What led you to write that? Because you did write it before all of this. And you even yes. admit like that was not an easy thing for you to speak up. And it took you a long time to even want to write this book. So what led right. you to write it? Well, I finally realized that I did not I did not need to have all of the answers and I didn't need to be perfect in that. And you know, I took a look at my bookshelf at one point and was like, "Wow, I have a lot of these like business leadership books and they're predominantly by white men." Mm-hmm. And that I'm translating the context that they're in or even the way they see the world and trying to make that fit. And I realized, you know what, I, we don't, we need different voices. And I felt like at that point I had had uh, the encouragement from uh, other editor friends, other writer friends in saying, yes, we need different voices who come from different perspectives. And I felt like, okay, well, I can do this because I'm not coming in as an expert who's figured everything out and here's the formula. My voice is, here are the things I've tried. This is what I found helpful. This is an experience of where I totally failed. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that that is how I decided to finally go about it was that this was something that we were all going to have to continue to learn and wrestle with whether or not we were in business or leading in church, that this is just a life skill. And it's something that we need to wrestle and learn with, especially as Christians. I think that when we talk about evangelism and we talk about sharing our faith, that is about raising your voice and doing it in a way that makes Jesus compelling and and then here we are <laughs> right and i i yes totally agree with you and on the surface it's like that that maybe should be somewhat easy but it's not just posting a bible verse or sharing right. a bible verse or right. posting i'm pro choice so i think that is why the current political climate the last several years this has made this all really muddy with believers and 
it's so much beyond now just raising your voice of what the Bible says. And so that's what I want to talk about of making sense of this, of how, because I know even myself, I'm just really wrestling. I mean, my political and faith views have shifted a lot. One, living in the Bible Belt, and two, with the current president. Um, Mm -hmm. And Somebody, though, I I also recognize I have a lot of privilege, and it'd be a lot easier for me to be quiet. So (laughs) tell me, so I can go back and forth and hear things like, we just need to pray for the president um, and quit creating conflict and being disruptive. Like, how do you answer to that? Because I can tell myself that sometimes. Sure, sure. And I think um, one of the things that I, like, even backing up a little further is that, yeah, this is... I mean, right now is very interesting. Two years ago was super interesting. Uh, Four years ago (laughs) was super interesting. And then I would say, you know, for me as an Asian American woman, a woman of color in the church, that it's always been interesting, right? Right. And so I think that it's, it's helpful for me to hear you say, like, this has been challenging and that you're on a journey. And I think that that's important for your listeners to understand is that you're entering into this journey in a different way and in a different time and place. And for a lot of us um, who would identify as people of color, and then in the context of the church, right, we're, we're told, right. well, our, our identity is in Christ. I hear that a lot. And I would say, yes, my identity is in Christ but my identity doesn't make us the same, mm-hmm. right? You live in the Bible belts. I live in the Midwest. Um, you're homeschooling your daughter. My kids went to public school. Those things all impact uh, the way we see scripture, the way we engage with theology, the way we see what is divisive and what is not, what has yes. been interesting times and what have always been interesting times. And so I think that's the hard thing is, as you have been experiencing too, right? You can post something up and you feel like you're trying to invite people into a conversation and the immediate reaction from some of your friends and followers in that space is, you know, stop being so divisive. (laughs) Yes, yes. And, And I laugh because... Um, for for me, I have more often than not felt that my questions, even my appearance, um, is different and therefore has the potential to cause division. Yeah. And I think what the church has been struggling with for a long time and maybe more uh, publicly and prominently in the last few years is that um, I think my siblings in faith who are white, Caucasian, majority culture are feeling like their values, what they grew up as being normal and wonderful and delightful is being questioned by people who have said it has never been that way for us, even under the banner of being one in Christ. Um, So it's hard. I mean, I, you know, I saw what happened on your (laughs) Facebook page and I tried to engage and I was like, yeah, this is nothing new. And it wasn't for you. And let's let's just talk about, I mean, what, because this is a timely, basically what I shared is, a letter that you had signed um, and help. Did you help author it, or were you just one of the? Um, I was faith one of the original that, signatories. Yeah. Okay, and it was basically a letter to President Trump and the White House Coronavirus Task Force, mm-hmm. just pleading with him and the, and the team about like let's not be encouraging that we open on Easter and let's put our you know our neighbors and our community first. I honestly, when I posted it, and I would just I wanted to share it because one, you were one of the people that had signed, and I knew you were coming on the podcast. And when I posted right. it, I did had no intention of it being divisive. Yes. I thought this would open some good conversation, or it would make people aware that this is an issue here right now. Right. But wow, I got a lot of 
backlash. And I mean, even last night I was, I was rereading the letter. I'm like, did I miss something? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, it just was Scott. I mean, it went to people, you know, I mean, talking about Native American, like just everything. Yes. What does white have to do with it? There's no right. black and white in Christianity. It kind of got a little out of control. And I really last night was, why would I post? Should I have just not posted that? Should I just delete that? And that's why I don't, you have a whole chapter in your book about using social media responsibly. And I mean, just using this case in particular, is that not using social media responsibly? Or is it good to like, just let conversations like that go? Talk about that a little bit. And I think it's a learning process, right? And it's, it's trying to figure out what, what is God's invitation to you in that platform and in that page? And who are the ones you actually have relationship with? Who are the ones who are you know, silently watching, but you're hoping they're learning from. And I think that's the challenging thing. I've had a lot of readers say, well, but I kind of miss, you know, just like the happy family pictures, that kind of stuff on Facebook. And again, uh-huh. I think that was that was just a small section or a small audience of Facebook. And there were others of us who always used social media to share information, to build coalitions, to find safe spaces to talk about what we wanted to talk about. And so, you know, as I watched that, I thought, oh my gosh, this will be fun to talk about with Andrea when we get on the podcast, in part because, like you said, it's new to you and you are asking all of the questions that are so normal. Do I leave this? Do I delete it? How do I engage? Right. And I think that that, I think, is the overall invitation that I want to say God is giving to all of us in this time. Mm -hmm. And how will we stay engaged in difficult, hard conversations? Because that is what builds community, right? Not just like this fake, yeah, we're Facebook friends, but how do we take that conversation to the next level? And it is hard. Social media is hard. And I would so say to like, leave it up. Yeah. Don't take it down. Okay. I'm not, I'm not. Because, yes. you know, two, <laughs> two points with that. When you talk about the silent people watching, I got two mm-hmm. messages yesterday from people that just thank me so much for posting mm-hmm. that and for being bold because they're not mm-hmm. yet and they right. like to see other so that and I'm like okay that's that's why I'm doing this and then my daughter 17 year old also I mean I could cry now because you know we, we want to be good examples for our daughters you have right. an old and she's like mom I just want to tell you how proud I am of you and mm-hmm. how I how much she admires me for just and it's like okay I really haven't done much but, I mean to deserve that but I'm like mm-hmm. okay that's why you do it but right. at the same time I don't want to create enemies. I don't want to create hate. And I know one of the things you say is don't post unless, or one of the things in your book, you say don't post unless you're willing to engage in online dialogue right. with right. people you disagree with. Well, I sure as heck did not reply to majority of those comments because mm-hmm. I mean, do you engage with things that you think are just, I don't know how do I nicely say this, just like really, are really challenging. You. <laughs> okay. You <laughs> That's said what so I much say. better. They're very <laughs> challenging. Um, and again, I think that is a skill yeah. and there is wisdom and patience to it, right? It's it's the long haul of those conversations and not always the sprint. Yeah. I chose to engage on that thread in part because I had the energy to engage and yeah. made the choice to not engage in the various other posts that were up on the very same day. But... And again, right, we are different spaces and different times. When I first started posting things years ago, I couldn't always engage because then I realized, oh my gosh, I've opened this can of worms and I don't, I don't know what to do with it. And I think once people realize when you open that can of worms, you cannot shove them back. Yeah. And, yeah. and if we're going to keep going with the analogy of worms, I also garden. How do we make sure those worms get into the ground Mm. and make the earth fertile? So how do we partner with other people? How do we um, invite and encourage those silent watchers, right, who then text you or email you behind the scenes? You can encourage them, right? And then you're still engaging with the posts that you put up. And then if you know any of those people, the next time you see them, 
maybe say, hey, can we talk about what happened there? Help me understand. Um, and for me, you know, people can go back to that thread and watch. If someone is going to make a statement, my journalism person, the journalist in me kicks in and back it up, right? Yeah. Back it up. There was a comment there about like, oh, well, these aren't, I think it was the insinuation that if you're a part of a certain denomination, you're not a real Christian. Yes. <laughs> it was like, I'm not of that denomination. And actually right. most of the original signatories were not. So let, let's back that up. Right. Um, and, and then there was another person I was engaging with. It's, we can use a euphemism we all understand. I want to know what you mean by that. Yes, and if, that is right? something you do so well that I'm learning from, is you ask people questions. Yeah. And that, that has struck me as one of the biggest lessons I've learned by watching you, is yes. the questions yes. that you ask. Yeah. You can't, and people I think, can't be defensive when you're just saying, exactly. well, explain to me. Yeah. Well, you know, they can be defensive, but you're I think right. that they that's can. part of it. <laughs> that's right. part of it, right? And I am gen genuinely trying to understand because I can assume right. what that person meant by that, but I am going to give as much energy as I have to say I don't want to assume because yeah. that never turns out well. Tell me what you mean by that, and we can engage on that. And, the you know, the person said she thought she had explained herself, I would disagree. In the end, I could make a lot of assumptions, but I'm going to drop it because she checked out. Right. And I think right. that's, that's all you can do when the only connection you have to somebody is online. But I think when you have a relationship, you see that person at church, you see that person in the neighborhood, there's always an opportunity to choose to pick that conversation up in a different way. That's the that's, harder part. Yeah, and that's very good. And that's what I, I know one of the comments was something about what does white have to, have to do, being white mm -hmm. have to do with this. And I still wanted to write a paper. Right. I'm like, I, I can't even like start on that one. So I'm right. like, if that's either something I'm going to have to send a private message or something mm -hmm. I'm going to see, do you really want to talk about this? Mm -hmm. Or because that is a, that is a broad, broad question with a lot behind it. Oh, um, yeah. And so I think it's also so situational and how the best way to play these out. And like you said, you learn and make mistakes and figure this out a lot as you go. And one of the other things I'm curious to have you explain a little bit more was your, your recommendation is don't post unless you're willing to play mediator. And mm -hmm. I didn't do that at all. And I knew that you had said that, but I, and I'm like, am I supposed to mediate? <laughs> so explain what you mean about that. Yeah. And how does um, that apply? Well, it, I do feel like, and again, the caveat is you're learning, but then yeah. I would encourage you to at some point then jump back in, right? Yeah. Make a comment or ask a question that okay. would be better in in trying to steer the conversation to the original point of your post. Okay, that's good. And I think that it's so easy to lose that, especially with the speed of social media. Mm -hmm. And then we forget time zones, <laughs> right? Yes. And not everyone has the luxury of sitting around on a computer with a keyboard, you're typing with your thumbs, all those types right. of things. Right. Um, but for me, encouraging folks like you, like I loved seeing that original post. And I, I actually kind of enjoyed the back and forth. And one of the women who joined on that particular thread, I don't know her personally, we've never met, but we have been in spaces like that. And so okay. we had a kind of funny side back and forth. Okay. And um, see, I messaged her too, because I knew what your, your suggestion about mediating and I messaged her. I'm like, do you want me to jump in? And she's yeah. like, no, I got this. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, we got okay. this. We're good. <laughs> like, yeah. Okay. This little white girl here will just kind of watch and learn. <laughs> you know, and even that I think is important to reflect on. And then how will you communicate that later? Yeah. Or how do you jump back into that thread and say, yeah, so let's notice who's been engaging, who's carrying that, you know, who's doing the heavy lifting of this conversation. Why do we think that's happening? I think those are the things that you start to learn yeah. the more you do this. Because I, I also know it's a very real thing that you, mm -hmm. 
as Asian Americans or black, I mean, black people that you don't want to be the ones that have to always be the ones talking and speaking oh, up yeah. for your side. And it's like, oh, I'm yeah. trying to be sensitive of that and wade through that and all of this too. And I think that though goes back to why there, there is the white privilege and we yes. have the choice whether to engage or not. And yes. we do need to give up a lot of our comfort so that you are not taking it all on yourself. And so that's what I want to talk about too, is just the privilege. I know one of the quotes in your book, you said, in order for us to begin the journey of finding and using our voices, we need to be fully present and recognize and take off whatever privilege as best we can. And I think about that as I'm maneuvering the space, because it is the reason I don't want to do it, or probably other white people don't, because it's uncomfortable. And we Mm -hmm. have to, we lose a little bit of something, whether that's being Mm -hmm. comfortable or giving up some freedom. And I think that's a really important thing to keep looking at. Cause like you said, you've been in this space a long time. You've got, you've had skin in the game a long time. Talk about privilege and how that, that plays in because I think a lot of white Christians don't necessarily recognize their privilege. Sure. And I think, so that I think is the invitation that I extend to my white Christian siblings is that that's, that's the, the burden and the privilege I want you to carry is yeah. I don't want to have to explain right white privilege as the person of color. I want yes. you, Andrea, I want um, Jen Hatmaker, right? I want those um, all of you with the podcasts and the books mm-hmm. or the spaces on Facebook to do that educating because you live in that space and in that privilege. Mm-hmm. And I think for all of us, even in this time, I think especially in this time here in the U.S., we are uncomfortable because we are being asked to shelter in place, to only buy two dozen eggs at a time, to mm-hmm. wait and step away six feet from the other people. So all sorts of our individual privileges are being stripped away and we are being told that this is for the benefit of the whole. And what I find so interesting and fascinating is that as Christians, this is what we are invited to do daily. Mm, That's good. You're right. Daily, right? right? And, And yet... This is so hard. <laughs> this is and it's so hard because hard. we're actually facing giving up privilege. White Absolutely. Christians that have always had it, always gotten what they wanted. Like we're, we're having to give it up. But like that's such right. a profound point, what you just said, that as Christians were asked to do that daily anyway. I- Mm, Absolutely. And so it is kind of funny. I've been laughing a lot at myself randomly during the day. Like, I don't know what I'm complaining about. I mean, Mm -hmm. I get to sit around in my yoga pants all day, sipping cold coffee. This is awesome. But Uh it's the other privileges that I think as particularly Christians in the United States, we just have assumed are always going to be ours. And then for you know for you as you were asking specifically around kind of the conversation around race yes this is something unique pressing into the white church and i will say white evangelicals that is the one i'm most adjacent to mm-hmm. and um and i think it's a wonderful opportunity to live into the very gospel that we say we believe in and that we will hurt with another part of the body that is Mm -hmm. suffering. And so I may not have the symptoms of COVID-19, but I certainly can shelter in place knowing that if I traipse around town like I would on any normal day, I put at risk other people unnecessarily. And that's not a value of the United States, but that is a value of Christians, right? To say that I am going to die to myself daily. And I think that this is, we are living into this. We are, the church is being invited to walk in this season of Lent, to die to ourselves and to say, maybe we haven't really understood the cross because we didn't want to. And in that conversation, again, to say, um, I'm happy to go back and forth with other white Christians, but at some point I need partnership with folks like you who knows what it looks like 
to have that realization that you've walked in this privilege and you couldn't identify it because it's always been the water you've been swimming in. Mm. I don't know how to do that from the inside. I've always been on the outside of that. And when I point in and I point to my white Christian siblings, I do think that that is unnerving. And so I need people who've always been in that fishbowl to name the things that have always been yours and the assumptions that you have worked on and lived off of that are different that you're learning, right? That are different from the assumptions and the values and the rules that I have lived through. Your words are so powerful. And that's spoken to me so much, Kathy, because I have thought, what do I even have to get, you know, When I have lived this white privilege, like what I can't relate, I don't know what they've lived through and I, what do I even have? But you articulated that just so, so well. And I Mm -hmm. thank you for, for that, for your voice, for your book. I could keep talking to you, but I want to be respectful of your time. And I think that what your words today have been powerful and I thank you so much for them. Tell folks where they can find you because I know you have an internet presence. Just tell us where we can find you. Yes. So folks can find me on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, My handle there is at Ms. M.S. Kathy Kong. And then um, I have an author page on Facebook somewhere. And then I do have a blog that I have, I periodically update. I've been meeting to sit down here. So that is kathykong.com. Okay. And then, like I said, you have a book that I just highly recommend. And it's so timely right now, even though it came out a couple of years ago. It's called Raise (laughs) Raise Your Voice, Why We Stay Silent and How to Speak Up. And then you also wrote a book in 2006 called More Than Serving Tea. And I have not read that one, but I will definitely... I loved, I loved your, the one that I did read. So I'm going to get a copy and read your other one too, because I just, I appreciate so much just learning, learning from you and watching you. And I thank you for being such, such an example to us us as other Christians, just trying to maneuver the space. Thank you. You can find the links to Kathy's books and where to find her on social media in the show notes at herstoryspeaks.com. I'll also put a link to the letter to the president from the faith leaders that Kathy and I spoke about in this episode that I shared on social media. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Her Story Speaks podcast. If you like the episode, I encourage you to share it with a friend. And if you can, leave a review for me on Apple iTunes. It helps others find the show more easily.